And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and on today's episode... The women's Euros are well underway. Every team has had at least one match day. Germany has now scored six in two games without reply, while the much-hyped Dutch and Swedes played out to a tie. Reports of the French national team's demise were perhaps premature, but Spain and Denmark have yet to live up to their pre-tournament allure. England put eight past Norway at full time, and it could have been even more by then. Joining me to round out today's podcast pairing, it's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hi, Taylor. That was a very respectable uh, Ryan Bailey hey. impression. All it was missing, I think, was a sexual innuendo, and that would have been a <laughs> Ryan Bailey performance to the T. Uh, I'm glad I didn't go the full Ryan Bailey then. Uh, that makes me happy, but it is just me and Graham today talking about the women's Euros. Graham, how has your, your soccer viewing schedule been this summer? I know there's still tennis in there, but I feel like... I keep kind of making this joke halfway and not really talking about it, but for a summer in which we don't have the Men's World Cup, and I think I sort of thought, like, how are we going to fill all the time? There's not going to be much to be discussed. It feels like we constantly have almost too much to be discussed. Yeah, I I think transfer chat has kind of taken over because it seems like there's a Mm -hmm. lot happening in particularly the Premier League, and obviously it's been a big summer in MLS as well. But in terms of the actual soccer, obviously I've been dipping into MLS, but thank goodness for the women's Euros because after Wimbledon and uh, after certain, the, the golf is this week, I'm doing a bit some work for the golf, but after those things are over, yeah, it's, it's a dearth of soccer for a few weeks. So I'm very, I'm very grateful for the, for the women's Euros. And it, and it has been a brilliant tournament so far. I was reading quite incredibly. There's been one fewer goal scored in this tournament after just one and a half rounds of fixtures than in the, t- the entirety of Euro 2017, which is incredible. And it, it kind of suggests that the teams that can maybe stop those goals are the ones that might have the advantage in this tournament and maybe why Germany are now being seen as one of the front runners. Yeah, I would say like, England, Germany and France definitely getting their fair share of goals uh, to start this tournament. And Graham, I'm glad you've been enjoying it since uh, I'm going to lead us in by talking about England being dominant. Uh, less so in their opener, but very much in their second game. An 8-0 win over Norway, a team that I thought yeah. might be able to beat England. Uh, I did not expect this one at all. I still even, I've watched this game like one and a half times now and then extended highlights on top. I still am sort of in awe of not only just the goals and how many there could have been, as I rhymed in the intro. There could have been more than the eight. Yes, there's a soft penalty to get things going or, or early on, but I think overall it still felt like England were going to win this front one from the jump. And here we are with them now feeling very confident of uh, what's to come. 
It's it's been a bad tournament, I think, for people making predictions because before, in our in our preview, we expected Germany and France to maybe not be so good. They now look like one of the, two of the the best three tournaments uh, teams in this tournament. And I also thought this this England Norway game was going to be a close encounter. It was going to be tight, particularly after England only just scraped by Austria in, the, in their their opening group game. And obviously, that did not pan out that way. England were extremely dominant. I think the the biggest margin of victory in any women's European championships in, in history. And I think it's been, it certainly has been a very good start to the tournament for England. Um, I will go back to that game against Austria because they are one of the teams that have played two games. So they were, they were pretty comfortable against Austria and they won that game 1-0. It never really felt like they were in any trouble with the exception of a slightly tense period in the second half. But the talking point after that game was a lack of cutting edge. And Serena Wiegmann, she was asked about that after the match because it has been a concern in the in the past for this England team under Wiegmann. I thought Ellen White was pretty wasteful. She had a, a number of chances. Lauren Hemp probably could or should have scored with a, a, a golden opportunity. And it all felt a little bit forced in final third. Um, and maybe that was down to some opening game nerves. It was a, a sellout crowd, a record crowd at Old, Old Trafford. England are the host nation, as we all know. They're expected to be one of the contenders. So maybe that was on the mind of, of some of the players. And I noticed that when I looked at the XG and some of the, the, the shots that they were having, one thing that was clear in, the, in their shot map was they, they registered the majority of their shots came from outside the box. Their XG was only just over, I think it was 2.01 or 2.02. Um, and it suggested maybe it wasn't about being more ruthless in front of goal, but actually about creating opportunities. And then you have that Norway match where pretty much everything that was wrong about the win over Austria was corrected. I'm not sure the term statement win does justice to what mm-hmm. England produced in that match. They did so much so well. They, the, the crossing was brilliant all night was one of the things I noticed. Just every delivery was on point. Beth Mead was constantly finding these dangerous pockets of space across the front line. I thought Lucy Bronze was was brilliant and caused so much damage down that right side. Ellen White, she wasn't wasteful in this game. I thought she was a brilliant attacking apex. And um, even on the defensive side, England, they they just they defended really well against that superstar Norway attack of uh, Ada Hegerberg, Grim Hansen, Guro Reiten. And, and Norway got nothing at all the whole match. And I thought that was that was clear in the way that Hegerberg was gesturing in frustration in the second half. And even when she did get yeah. near the ball, she was just bouncing off Millie Bright and, and that England defence. And I thought the biggest difference for me with England was they, they just moved 10 yards higher up the pitch from the Austria game. Um, and that's kind of where they had their platform. In the Austria game, there were periods where they sat deep and invited pressure on top of themselves. But Norway, they were just never given a moment to settle. The, the, the press was high from England as well. And 8-0 was not a flattering scoreline. It really did illustrate how dominant England were in this game. For folks who are like, getting into soccer or relatively new to it or want to learn more about the tactics, Graham. Uh, hearing that, like, oh, they were 10 yards further up doesn't seem like that much when the field is as big as it is. Why did that make a difference? Why was that such a difference for England? It just means that Norway don't have any way to get out. So when you have players that are higher up the pitch, obviously that is more conducive to a high press. And England certainly did that against Norway. As I said, they were slightly passive in periods against Austria. And in fact, against Austria... It was Austria a lot of the time who were doing the high press and you can get at this England team by pressing them high and I'm surprised Norway didn't do that more because they were much more passive than I was expecting in this game. But but just by pushing that defensive line 10 yards higher and that midfield higher, you make it more difficult for the opposition to breathe. They find that 
players are on top of them quicker when they do have the ball and it just meant that that front line that that Norway did have and they do have one of the best attacks in in this tournament certainly with Hegerberg one of the best players in the world and Graham Hansen who's one of the best finishers in the world it just meant that they were isolated for for a lot of the match and it was a big difference I'm sorry a big disconnect between their midfield and attack and I was surprised that they didn't change it early and they did they did go to this back five in the second half but they were already what was it, 6-0 down at the start of the half, of the second half? So the game was kind of gone by that point, you could say. Kind of gone, a little bit. It feels like it's going to be tough to pull that one back uh, at halftime. And I think that was a standout thing for me, was that I was pretty excited about Wiegmann taking over England. I felt like she was a great manager for the Dutch when she was there, and I feel like thus far she has proven herself to be a great manager for England because she is pragmatic, but also I think makes those little adjustments in-game and between games. And you could see that on display as you've already uh, well laid out so far, Graham. But I think, by contrast, uh, Norway manager Martin Sjogren did not make the changes that maybe were required. And I think there were some obvious problems from the jump. It turns out playing a right-footed right center back at left center back in Torstater uh, maybe doesn't help when you need them to be able to play with their dominant foot, and they can't. And then maybe playing a left-winger, Julie uh, Blackstad, at yeah. left back, also not the best idea because it leaves acres of room to be attacked and England were more than happy to take advantage I felt like they also England uh, handled the physical side of things or rather dominated on the physical side of things Uh, Ingrid uh, Ingrid Engen getting knocked off the ball regularly Uh, Hagerberg as you've already mentioned being pretty isolated and pretty frustrated it seemed like this was a great example of what that next level manager can do for a team give them that right preparation, give them that right motivation, and then send them out there and they get that win. I don't think I would have expected 8-0, but uh, I think from the opening minutes, it seemed like it was going to be fairly open. Maybe England had the advantage, and then very quickly, England definitely literally had the advantage. Yeah, Julie Blackstad had one of the most difficult matches I have ever seen a fullback have. And of course, the key point there is, as you referenced there, Taylor, she's not a fullback, um, so it's not her natural position. And I think that kind of tactic works when you are expecting to dominate like the Northern Ireland game when Blackstack was actually very good and, and was able to start a lot of moves from that fullback position on the left side of the defence. But it's just so risky when you're up against wingers as good as England have and she was being pulled in all sorts of directions and Lucy Bronze had her had her on toast and she was coming out of the, the defensive line and but not in sync with her defensive teammates, which was opening up these pockets of space and Georgia Stanway and Beth Mead in particular were were, were filling them and I'm surprised Blackstad didn't come off at, at half time. And even worse was that Sogren, the manager, he didn't seem to give her a plan. So when you have a, a player suffering like that and you decide to keep them on the pitch, because I can understand you you maybe don't want to take a player off at half time that might destroy their, particularly in a tournament, that might destroy their, their confidence for the rest of the tournament. So you, you decide to, to keep them on, but as a coach, you want to remind them of the fundamentals. You want to give them simple responsibilities and focus them in an, in an attempt, an attempt, sorry, to just get them back in a level footing. But Blackstad struggled for the, the full 90, 90 minutes and it was very, very difficult to watch at times. It was, it was a, a poor performance. I'm not sh- sure how much of that was, was down to her, how much was down to the instruction, how much was just down to the fact that's not her position. But England had a lot of joy down that right side. That they did. I want to talk more about Norway, where they go from here in just a second. First, I want to talk about this England team and where they stand. Because obviously they have topped the group. They have uh, qualified for the next round. And I believe they've qualified as the top team. So they've secured that first place spot. I was listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. They had a special episode of the Athletics Women's Football Podcast. Uh, and a 
good couple minutes of it were taken up uh, interviewing fans as they were leaving the stadium. And to hear the joy from little kids, from their parents, from individuals, just how excited they were, how proud they were of this team, it feels like it's it was maybe the happiest sporting day for many people in attendance, but it also feels like a team that has figured some things out between the first game and the second, has the confidence. And it, and it was Norway, I think, backing off, heads going down, maybe not being up for the fight, especially uh, in the final maybe 20 minutes of that first half. But it's still England really rounding into form at maybe the worst time for some of the opposition they're about to face. It seems like at this point we could be well poised for. I, I checked to make sure this was possible. If England and France both top their teams or top their groups, uh, a decent chance we get them in the final, or there could be a chance we get them in the final. Uh, how confident must England be feeling right now, Graham? Oh, hugely confident. It just feels like everything is in their favor at, at the moment. As you say, Taylor, I think you're right to highlight how they learned lessons from from the first game. So I, I wrote a piece after that win over Austria, which said the, the gist of it was basically not England weren't at their best, but it's a fine start to the tournament if they use this to grow into the tournament. And that's exactly what they did in that in that Norway game, a, a higher caliber of opposition, and yet they they just lifted their match, sorry, their game. And this England team have had they've had good players for a long time. We've seen it at the the last World Cup, the last Euros. But that final piece has just been missing. And I feel like Serena Wiegmann is is that final piece. It just feels like they arguably have the best or one of the best international uh, managers in the women's game at the moment. And then they have all this talent. And then they have, they seem to be using the home support. Because that's the other thing is some teams can can crumble with that, the expectation mm-hmm. of a home support. But this England team, they seem to be thriving with it. I, I think England are going to be difficult to stop in this tournament. I feel pretty confident that they're going to make the final and really, the only teams capable of stopping them, in, in my opinion, on the evidence we currently have, are maybe maybe France and, and, and Germany. I think Spain have been weaker than we've expected them to be. And I think if it's Spain in that quarterfinal, which is the way it's sort of looking at the moment, I expect England to come through that match. So we expect England out of Group A. We know they'll be out of Group A. The other team to make it out of Group A is a little bit more open for conversation because, as things stand, it's Austria in second. They got a 2-0 win over Northern Ireland, uh, but very much superior goal difference because they lose their opener against England 1-0. Norway behind them uh, with three points, but a negative five goal difference. Those two teams will be playing each other on the final match day. And I would be really nervous if I were Norway. I don't even want to ask you, Graham, is there a way, like, like, should they be nervous? What do you make of their chances? Because really, <laughs> watching Austria versus England, uh, I think England didn't have the strongest game, but I also think you have to give credit to the opposition for that. And then, watching Austria in that 2-0 win over Northern Ireland, I think there are some things that are going to be problematic for Norway. I think overall... The shape itself isn't anything like too innovative or revolutionary. It's a 4-1-4-1, but they will press high. They hassle everywhere, and they have a lot of talent, Austria, especially through the middle. Uh, Sarah Puntigam, as their number six, can, like, very calm on the ball, able to turn under pressure, play the ball forward, but also has just a lethal left foot, can switch the field, can spread the field out. Uh, they've got, uh, it's Nicole Bila up top who drops in and links up play, but then can also get on the end of crosses. And the other one that I think Norway will want to pay attention to, Julia Hickelsberger-Fuller, dangerous on the counter and attacking down the right wing, which would be Norway's left side. We saw England have some joy there. I think this Austria team can cause Norway problems, and this is a Norway team that has to get the win. A tie does not get them through. A draw doesn't get them through. So it's going to be Norway having to kind of go at Austria, try to make something happen that potentially leaves them open on the break. But if they don't, 
press Austria if they don't put them under pressure. What I saw was an Austria team who, when they have time, when they're not getting that immediate pressure, are able to complete passes and spread the field and link up and have really good combination through the middle, but then incorporate out wide. And I think that Norway-Austria game is going to be pretty fascinating from start to finish. Yeah, and and you've covered a lot of the the tactical and strategical sides there, but I'm going to talk about something slightly more intangible with regards to Norway, and that is one of the most concerning things about the defeat to to England was it really seemed to hit a lot of the players' confidence, and you could tell. Yeah, obviously that is natural. They've lost eight nil, but I mean, (laughs) I mean, maybe even more than you would expect. You could tell that in some of the the body language on the pitch during the match, but also in some of the comments made after the game. I don't know if you caught any of those, but there was a particular comment from Caroline uh, Graham Hansen where she basically said Norway had been hyped up too much and that we shouldn't expect too much from them. And basically losing 8-0 to England is kind of where those two teams are at this moment. That doesn't exactly hint at a group that has the highest self-belief at the moment. And obviously the tactical side of things uh, matters a lot. And I would say a lot is in favour with Austria, all the things you highlighted there, the fact that they will press high on Norway and Norway did not handle that well from, from England. So Austria will look to replicate that. But just if if they have no self-belief after that England game, it's going to be very, very difficult. And just the way the group has panned out, Austria are obviously coming into that game on the back of a win. So they're probably going to be the more confident of the two teams. And uh, I didn't, uh, I did watch the Hegerberg interview. Uh, time is lost on meeting. It's tough to track everything. But then reading her comments afterwards, in contrast, she was, I think, much more to the point of, yeah, we got to move on. It wasn't great. We know that. Here we go. And, and so I think those contrasting emotions, you don't want to hear your players say like, yeah, I think we got too much hype. There's too much attention on us. People are too interested. It's just like, that's not a, a confident answer. The confident answer is, yeah, we had a bad game. These things happen on to the next one. We'll turn it around. That's kind of what you got to say in public to then have those private soul-searching moments, those private kind of coming togethers and figuring out what's gone wrong. But yeah, if you have, I think, mixed messages uh, when you're talking post-game, I guess it's to be expected when you lose 8-0, but it's definitely not ideal for a team that I think we all had pretty high expectations for. Graham, anything else from Group A before we keep it moving? Nope, I think we can we can move on. Um, England are, are certainly the strongest team in this group, and it's just really between Austria and, and Norway now to see who finishes second. All right, so one group down, three groups to go. We will take a quick break and be back with Group B. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. All right, Graham, it's time for Group B. Germany and Spain both started the tournament strongly. There's no rhyming this time, don't worry. Germany opened up with a 4-0 win over Denmark. Spain handed Finland a 4-1 loss, but when the two sides met on Tuesday, it was all Germany. They got a 2-0 win, and Graham, legend has it, Germany is still pressing to this day. They've never stopped, and they never will. 
Oh my goodness, the pressing from Germany in the two <laughs> games that I've watched from them at this tournament. My only concern is that they're going to run out of gas as, as they play more matches. Mm-hmm. But if they can keep that up, they're... The um, well, pipeline's off now, so yeah, they could definitely run Yeah, gas. yeah, yeah. They don't have... Uh, it's not Russian-powered high-pressing <laughs> yeah. anymore. Uh, there's a little geopolitical joke hey! for you. Yeah, I, I don't think... Let's, let's roll it back to before the start of the tournament. I don't think anyone was quite sure what to expect from Germany. I don't think we wrote them off quite as much as we did France, but it's fair to say we maybe didn't have them among the the three front runners. But I I think we certainly need to revise that now because I know England thumped Norway 8-0, but Germany for me have been the most impressive team over their two matches, in my opinion, just because the standard of the two teams that they have played have been really high. So you have Denmark, the the finalists of the last Euros, then you have Spain, the the tournament favourites. And their, their performances have been complete in a way that says to me they're going to be very hard to beat at this tournament. So let's look at the win over over Denmark first. Their press, as you highlight there, uh, Taylor, that was the most impressive thing in that game. I, maybe just down to my ignorance, I wasn't expecting that level of intensity from them. I hadn't seen that in some of the, the warm-up matches that they had played, so that caught me off guard. And, and it was stunning at, time because they were, at times because they were doing this thing where they were committing five players to the press and they, they were leaving five players back as the, in the, as the safety net. And it just meant Denmark struggled to to play through them. And even on the odd occasion when they did, there was that barrier to stop them getting any further. And Denmark are, are a good team. They have good technicians. They have a good technical level. They have tournament experience as well, as I said, the finalists in the, in the last Euros. But they they were just suffocated by that German high press and it led to the to the the first goal by Lena Magul and and and, and German eh, sorry Denmark just they never looked comfortable it was relentless from from Germany and really really impressive stuff and then you had that match against Spain on Tuesday and there's been some big matches at this tournament and we'll we'll probably speak a, about a, a few of them later on but this was the one that everyone had picked out from the group stage as the blockbuster game and and the way that Germany played this game um, was very impressive as well. It was slightly different in that it, the the high press was there, but it was it was very um, it it was strategic in the way that they did it on certain players in certain positions and in areas yeah. of the pitch. Whereas against Denmark, it was like they were pressing everyone all the time for the full ninety minutes. They didn't do that against Spain because obviously Spain have the technical ability to play around them. But they did press high in the attacking third and they forced Spain into the, into mistakes. Obviously, we have that mistake from Panos in, in, in the first couple minutes, which gives uh, Germany their, their first goal. And um, Germany just, they, they were able to snap back into their defensive shape when, when they had to sit back and absorb the pressure and the possession from Spain, because Spain are always going to have that. And I found that toggling between the two different approaches of a high pressing, a high pressing game, high intensity game when they had the ball and making the most of their opportunities and then also snapping back in that defensive shape to prevent Spain from playing through them. And that was really the story of the match for Spain was that they were unable to play through Germany and really unable to translate any of their their dominance and possession into clear goal scoring opportunities, which we we feared might be the issue with Spain, but Germany just did that so effectively. Yeah, I want to I want to get a little bit deeper on Spain uh, in a moment. First, with Germany, it feels like a team. To go to your initial point about like a, kind of our discussion about them in the preview, what what I sort of remember, what I was feeling in that preview was basically that there's other teams who have a ton of star power or very known names, and then there are other teams that are sort of up and coming and have these new wrinkles, this new technical precision, a la Spain. Uh, and and looking back on it now, I just feel like Germany just weren't 
as exciting, but there wasn't really a reason for that. It was basically just like, oh, yeah, they're Germany. They're always good. There was a joke uh, in The Guardian many years ago about the German men's team when they were talking about like teams remaining in a tournament. And the line was uh, the German national team, which, according to international law, can never be written out. And that's sort of how this German women's team <laughs> feels like. It's like you can sort of not give them maybe the, the star billing that they might expect or demand, but they will end up earning that. And in this case, it felt like it was the kind of crafty veterans coming up against the, the upstart Spanish and and sort of knowing exactly how to play with Spain having maybe more of the pressure, more of the hype around them. I think Germany yeah, had those pressing triggers, targeted certain players, certainly targeted the goalkeeper, uh, as you've already pointed out. And I, and I think it was just, it wasn't a comprehensive victory. I don't think you can ever say that when the team that won had 30% possession. But I think it was just a really smart, well-coached victory Victory, which is sort of, I guess, what we've come to expect from Germany uh, on both the men's and women's sides of the ball. Yeah, they, they played the game that they had to play. I don't think you could have played any other way against this Spain team, certainly if you if you want to, to win the match. So they, they executed that game plan very well, but they also had a number of of individuals who who played very well. So I thought Oberdorf in, in central midfield was was brilliant, even when she didn't have the ball. And as you've highlighted there, Germany didn't have the ball for large periods of this match, only 30% of possession. But when Oberdorf did have the ball, she was very efficient in feeding it into Huth and, and, and Bull and um, not so much Alexandra Pott, but um, into the channels to make sure that Germany made the most of the space that they did have in the wide areas and that Spain were, 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 were willing to give them, but also off the ball as well, just maintaining that structure. I thought Hegering as, as well was, was brilliant against Spain. I thought her discipline was spot on. Um, she never grew impatient at the level of possession that Spain had, which would have been very easy. And I actually thought that was something that carried across the whole German team was that, that discipline and, and, uh, that patience. In, in the face of the Spain uh, possession. And I thought Hegering's performance in, in general epitomised what Germany were trying to do. The shape was, was spot on. She kept that very well. They, they won basically every physical battle. As I say, their use of the ball was very smart. They took their, their opportunities. They defended with discipline. There was a bit of muscle in their performance. They kept it simple at times when they needed to. Yep. And I think Hegering has been one of the players of the tournament so far. And as I say, she embodies a lot of what makes Germany so strong at this moment. I'm not sure if you said the word, but I feel like you and I are doing a lot of legwork to not refer to the Germans as efficient. But that was a very efficient <laughs> win, so I'm going to say it's okay. At least we didn't say yeah. a well-organized defense or something like yeah, that. Yeah, th this was this was a, a match that did a lot for stereotypes between Germany <laughs> being very efficient and Spain being brilliant at all the technical yeah. sides of the game, but not being able to finish. I feel like that's a thing that yeah. is uh, sometimes lazily trotted out about German and Spanish teams, but yeah. in this case, it feels applicable. Uh, yeah, I'll continue the laziness then, especially since Joe isn't here to defend himself, because I think Joe <laughs> was was obviously very, very hyped about this Spain team. My concern or my like little concern, and I think you joined me with this one, Graham, so I'll give you credit too, mm -hmm. was just that we've seen Spanish teams have tons of possession uh, and have a lot of expectation, and at times that can be a problem for them if they're playing teams that are then just going to sit deep and, and try to frustrate. Not that Germany did that in this game, but looking at the numbers, Spain had 70% possession, created 12 chances, completed 559 total passes, but only put three shots on target, scored zero goals. This feels like that concern that we had about Spain in our preview, you yeah. and I. Uh, lots of technical technical ability, lots of possession, but without key players, Hermoso and Putelas. 
How do they stay sharp, Graham? What do they need to do now to be able to kind of recapture some of that goal-scoring form? They scored tons in Euro qualifying. They've scored tons in World Cup qualifying. But thus far, haven't quite done that Mm -hmm. against that stronger opposition, which they would obviously be meeting in the knockout round should they advance. So what do they need to do? How do they need to sharpen up? How can they score some goals against stronger opposition? Yeah, it's, it's, it has been a funny tournament for Spain because they, they bounced back really emphatically from losing. They lost the, the an early goal against Finland in their opening match. They've actually conceded early goals in both games that they've played against against yeah. Finland and, and Germany. But they, they bounced back against Finland. And even though it was a traditionally Spanish performance against Finland, they did they did make good use of set pieces and crosses. So Spain scored three headers in, in that in that 4-1 win. And yes, they, as I say, they had control and they had possession, but they, they were able to create chances in maybe a slightly more physical way than we saw against Germany. One of the, one of the things that was confusing about that team that they picked, that uh, Jorge Vilda picked against Germany, was the fact that Esther Gonzalez, an actual striker with a, a very good scoring record for club and country recently, she she came out of the lineup for for the Germany game after starting against Finland, and and I think she scored against Finland if my memory serves me correct, and she didn't even make it off the bench against Germany when it felt like Garcia maybe wasn't doing the the job up front for Spain. She missed a yeah. a very good opportunity that would have put I think that was at nil nil, so that would maybe put that would have put Spain one nil. Up where she, uh, she rounds. I, the- I think it was after Germany had gone one nil up because I remember being like, "Oh, that could have done it. They could have pulled it back, and it's all to play for." Because I felt so bad that they conceded the way they did so early, and then she misses that, and that did feel. You're right, like that sort of that lack of precision. You're not going to get that many opportunities. You've got to take it there. You don't take it. Maybe somebody else would have. Yeah, and it, and it feels weird that Vilda did go for Garcia up front when Gonzalez, as I say, she, she scored in the first game, played well in the first game. And in, a, in tournament football, you really want to, certainly with a number nine, if you have someone that's playing well, you don't really want to mess with that much, particularly if you have two attacking players who are out of the tournament through injury, as yeah. Spain have with Hermoso and Patella. So that was very surprising that, that she came out of the lineup. I, I expect that she might come back into the side for that for that Denmark game. But... Um, it was it was a it was a, a damaging result in performance for Spain. I thought they were they were so very toothless in, in in that game against Germany. There are still some positives to take from the two games that they 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 played. So going back to that game against Finland, if if they play like that against Denmark in the final game, and they are slightly more direct at times with some of their crossing and with um, playing for set pieces. I think they they probably do enough to get past Denmark. I thought Ben Mate was the best player on the pitch in Spain's opening game, game against Finland. Just brilliant, really clever movement and distribution and everything you would expect of a Barcelona and Spain midfielder. And one of the things that's so impressive about Bon Mate, and I've watched her quite a bit for Barcelona, um, certainly over the last uh, season, is that she is the complete midfielder. So we live in the age of the specialists where midfielders in particular do one side of the game and others do another side of the game. But she is a midfield barrier in the way that she she wins the brawl, it wins the ball, sorry, and breaks up opposition moves. But she's also a creator and a, and a goal threat. And she scores a header in that game against, in, in, against Finland as well. So with her in midfield, I almost feel like Spain can maybe get another attacker into their lineup with, uh, if, if, if Vila yeah. wants to stick with Garcia, then maybe Gonzalez comes in alongside 
uh, Garcia up front. But having Bonmati there, certainly against, maybe you won't get away with it against a Germany or an England or France or one of the favourites, but De- Denmark, I feel like Spain have the talent advantage to maybe take an extra risk and push a player slightly further towards the goal. And as I say, bring in Esther Gonzalez and I feel like that fixes a lot of problems. Graham, I appreciate your more common sense approach to this because I think I have completely forgotten the Finland game and only focusing on the Germany loss for Spain makes it seem like things are worse than they are. When in reality, I think it's a German team that you've already laid out. Like they targeted certain players. They had very good, well-designed pressing triggers that they executed very, very well. I don't know how many other teams in the tournament will be able to do that. I don't know if Denmark will be able to do that. So I think I was probably more down on Spain when we started recording. I feel like they've still got a a pretty decent chance to advance, but if they want to do so, they're going to have to get uh, or put in a decent shift against Denmark, who got their first win. Uh, They keep their knockout hopes alive with that win. It took them a very long time to break through against Finland. Pernille Harder got a headed tap in in the 72nd minute, which isn't a thing that always happens. Uh, I would argue their increased pressure in the second half, they stepped it up a little bit more. They went at Finland. They made Finland more uncomfortable. That seemed to be the difference maker. Harder had to come out due to a clash of heads. If she's able to play that final game of the group, Graham, what do you think they need to do to spring a surprise on Spain? This was the game that I think I was most excited about in our preview of this group. So uh, I love that Denmark and Spain have it all to play for, and I'm expecting a pretty exciting game. It's been a fairly underwhelming tournament for Denmark so far in that they were one of the, the dark horses, and there has been a trend at this tournament of the dark horses underwhelming. In fact, some of them have been absolutely smashed at this tournament and uh, I think some of the dark horses are on their way to the slaughterhouse at this point but at least Denmark they can take a positive out of it that they they do go into that final group game against Spain with that match being a, a straight shootout if they win that they're into the quarterfinals and if you take away the performances that that's probably what they were realistically aiming for in in this group anyway I, in terms of what they can do against Spain, and this is going to be very easy, much easier said than done. They they have to look at what Germany did against Spain because I feel like if Denmark try and um, control the game as they did in periods uh, against Finland, if they if they go if they use that back three as well that they used against Finland, um, I'm not entirely sure that's going to go well for them. It feels like Spain might be able to just pass around them, so they're going to have to sit deep for periods. They're going to have to make good use of the the channels. They're going to ask um, going to have to ask Pernilla uh, Harder to do a lot of running uh, and do a lot, not just be someone that's get, getting in the penalty box to finish off chances. They're probably going to ask her to be very mobile. But I think the performance against Finland was much better than the performance against Germany, where obviously they, they get smashed 4-0 in, in that first game. But the changes that they made for that match were positive. So Sondergaard, he went to a back three, as I mentioned, that allowed Denmark to get more players into the middle of their team, gave them a bit more control, also seemed to do a better job of giving a, a platform to Harder, who's obviously their star player, and she scores the only goal in this match. As you referenced there, Taylor comes off with a head knock. So there is a bit of doubt over whether she is, she is going to play that game against Spain. But I think if they play as they did against Germany, which was just a little bit too passive, they will get passed to death by Spain. Equally, if they try and go toe-to-toe with Spain, I also feel like they're going to get passed to death. So what Germany did was they kind of, as I said, they toggle between two approaches and, and Denmark have to try and do something like that. 
Uh, Graham, I should have asked you this earlier if we're looking at the groups as they stand. Uh, why don't we each pick a team to advance out of each? I'll start. I'll say I think England will advance out of Group A. So if you had to sure. pick between Austria and Norway, <laughs> I'm giving you the harder one both times. Uh, would you pick Austria or Norway based on what we've seen so far? Uh, I'm going to go with Austria, actually. Right. That's, maybe the, that's maybe my my biggest uh, tip is that Austria, I think, will beat Norway. Which on individual talent probably shouldn't happen, but I feel like Austria are in a better place at this moment. I, I, I like that shout. I would have maybe gone that way if I were a bit braver. Uh, in Group B, I'll, I'll predict that Germany will make it out, Graham, since they have already <laughs> secured uh, advance to the knockout round. Which means, uh, would you go with Spain or Denmark in that game? Still Spain. I okay. feel like there are there are a lot of questions about Spain at the moment, but they've got a, a pretty big talent advantage over Denmark. And I feel like there are, there are things that they can do to fix what went wrong in the Germany game. As I said, maybe bringing in Esther Gonzalez, maybe dropping Garcia from that team, maybe putting an attacking midfielder ahead of Bonmate to to be slightly more uh, brave, I guess, in possession. Whereas with Denmark, it feels like they're certainly not a one-person team, but if Spain are able to stop Nila Hardell, or even if she's injured and not available for that game, I'm I'm not entirely sure how Spain are going to score enough goals to get past Spain. Eh, so eh, Denmark are going to score enough goals to get past Spain. Too many teams. There's too many teams. It's hard to keep <laughs> track of them all. In fact, why don't we take a break to reset, and then we will be back to round it out. We've got two groups down, two still to go. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, welcome back. We move to Group C. By the time people hear this episode, I'm going to, going to assume that Group C will look uh, very different than it does when we first started recording uh, because uh, all four teams drew, so we have one point apiece. Uh, we had Portugal and Switzerland draw 2-2. The Netherlands and Sweden managed a 1-1 to draw. Let's start with Sweden 1, Netherlands 1. Uh, Graham, I thought Sweden looked like they were going to win this one comfortably early on. The Dutch pulled it back with good performances from uh, Vivian Miedema and Gronin who are both now out due to COVID. Uh, That is a bit of disappointment, I'm guessing, for the Dutch. (laughs) How concerned are you for their final game or for their next game against Portugal, Graham? It kind of reminds me of, to to draw a personal comparison, it kind of reminds me of Billy Gilmore making his debut at Wembley and being man of the match and being like, okay, we've got a chance in this tournament as long as we've got Billy Gilmore and then Billy Gilmore (laughs) picked up COVID and missed Scotland's final game when we lost that, that final game. Very similar because, as you highlighted there, it felt like... So this was 
Um, very much this went along the lines of the cliche game of two halves because I thought the Dutch were, were very poor in the first half, a lot better in the second half. But one of the differences between the first and the second half was that they were able to get uh, Miedema involved and Gronin as well was was one of the players who turned it round for them. And obviously, as you say, they, they, are, they are both out. So the fact that those two players have picked up COVID now I think just feeds into this narrative that it has been a challenging tournament for the Netherlands so far. As we discussed in the preview pod, Mark Parsons hasn't really been in the in the job for long. He's still figuring, figuring out a system and a formation and he's sort of building the plane while flying it. And there was that thumping loss to England before the tournament. So expectations were strangely low for a team that is, they're the defending champions, the defending European champions. They won Euro 2017. And the first half of that, their opening match against Sweden, it was a rough one for the Netherlands. They lost their goalkeeper, uh, Sari van Venendal, that's a difficult one to say, <laughs> uh, to injury. And then uh, Nguyen was also forced off with uh, injury after after uh, 35 minutes. They go behind as well in that first half, the Netherlands. So it doesn't look good for them at that time. But in a strange way, that, this seemed to galvanise them a little bit. I thought the, the sub-goalkeeper, Van uh, Domicilar, she made some very good saves and it was just like the, the Dutch settled themselves and there was a greater composure to, their, composure to their play in the second half. I'm going to highlight Miedema and Gronin, even though they are potentially out of the rest of the group stage. I thought uh, Jackie Gronin had an excellent game. The amount of, of uh, ground that she covered was incredible. And I think the Dutch midfield in general is one of the best in the tournament. So they have that double pivot of Gronin and, and Spitzer. They have an excellent mix of quality. As I say, with, with Gronin, the, the, the ground that she covers, and then the, you've got the composure of Spitzer as well. And they actually have quite similar roles, but Gronin offers just a little bit more in terms of ball recovery and she's more press resistant. And I thought that came through in the, in the performance in the second half against Sweden. Even as things frayed slightly around her in the first half, I thought she was one of the few players who was able to get a grip of the game. And then Miedema as well. Obviously, we, we know all about Miedema's scoring record for club and country. And she does have those finishing instincts of a penalty box poacher. But there is so much more to her game. She has uh, She's played as, as a number 10 for, for Arsenal at times this season, uh, particularly after the after the, the, the arrival of um, uh, in in January. And that's what Parsons did in the second half, was he basically, he said to Miedema, I want to see more from you. And she was coming deep to get the ball. She was con- she was uh, kind of conducting the counter-attacks. And as I say, the, the Dutch were just getting more, doing a lot more to get her on the ball. And that's where the equalising goal comes from. It's when Minima does this wonderful spin in tight space near the halfway line and then drives the ball forward. So they didn't just use Minima as a finisher. They used her as someone to conduct their attacks. And that was, along with Jackie Gronin, kind of getting a grip of things in the central midfield. That was one of the, 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 the things that turned this game around for the Netherlands. And it's concerning that both of those players are now missing for them. Yeah, and Miedema especially, Graham, you're absolutely right to highlight her role in that goal. And it's it's near uh, the halfway line. It's also, I think, near the sideline. And she's able to like sort of yeah. turn and then drive down that line and open up the entire like basically attacking space. And she's just so calm on the ball. I like her heart. Her resting heart rate is like eight or something like that because she just <laughs> is so unflappable. I I don't know what the Dutch will do to replace her because I'm not sure you can. So I think. It requires some tactical reconfiguring uh and and maybe it is just sort of get through that next game against portugal if you get a win you get a win uh maybe you're okay with a draw and then you go and try to get that final win against switzerland uh to to advance to the knockout round but i I think 
it, it's a really difficult one for the Dutch and for Mark Parsons. I hope they're able to figure that one out because they're just a very fun team to watch. So too were Sweden. I felt like for for the at least the first half of this game, were you surprised that they let the the Dutch back into this, or that the Dutch were able to get back into it? Because for me, as I said, it felt like they were kind of cruising in the first half, and then very much mm. less so in the second. Yeah, there were two sides to why this, the dynamic of this match changed. So we've highlighted what the, the Dutch did and that had the desired effect for them. But looking at this match from the Swedish side of things, it was disappointing in a sense that they allowed the Netherlands back into this match when they looked to be well on top in, in, in the first half. And of, of, of course, Sweden have been talked about as one of the favourites to win this, this tournament. And while I don't think this result or performance really changes much in that regard, they probably still get out of the group quite comfortably. They probably are still in those quarterfinals. But there was an opportunity here to put down a marker and a, and a statement in much the same way Germany and England and France have. If not with the, an, an emphatic scoreline, that opportunity wasn't really there. But a win over a high-caliber op- opponent, that opportunity was certainly there. And I just felt like there wasn't the intensity to Sweden's game that I expected in, in the second half. They did ease off in that in that second period. And and the frustrating thing for me was they, they did have the attacking quality to really press home their advantage. It was confusing to me after a first half in which uh, Fridolina Rolfo was having so much joy driving at the, the Dutch defence. It was confusing that in the second half she was pulled back into midfield slightly more. Now, again, things can be two things. That is partially because the the Dutch were doing a better job in in the midfield of controlling that game. So I, I guess that makes some sense that they wanted an extra body in there. But if the plan was to shore things up to stop the Dutch from playing their natural game, it, it felt slightly um, counterintuitive. And maybe Sweden might have been better actually fully attacking the Dutch in the second half just as they did in, in the first half. Certainly when they bring on uh, Blackstenius, who... Is, has been struggling for fitness early on in this tournament. I believe she she started the the, the game against uh, Switzerland today, as we're recording. So maybe maybe that will change things for for Sweden from this point on. But it really felt like the opportunity was there for Sweden, and they didn't take it. Uh, update on that one: We're at halftime of Sweden Switzerland. It's nil nil, so it hasn't changed that much uh, so far. Uh, and maybe the Swiss will just be happy that uh, they haven't let Sweden uh, get away from them because the Swiss jumped out to a. 2-0 lead over Portugal in their opening game, and then Portugal able to pull two two goals back. Uh, that was the the game that I probably saw the least of, of all the games that we have discussed and will be discussing, uh, but it, it seemed pretty frenetic at times, and so I think for the Swiss to maybe uh, slow it down a bit, I think possession is is, is fairly balanced in their game against, uh, against Sweden today. Uh, maybe th- that's a positive for them already. I think for Sweden, though, you would have expected them to kind of come out and again try to make that statement, try to get that early lead. Haven't been able to do so. So far, we'll see how that one uh, plays out, and obviously we will be back to talk about those games and many other ones. Uh, but Graham, anything else to talk about from Group C? No, I think we I think we've covered it. And I think this has actually been one of the more interesting groups. I thought yep. the the Netherlands Sweden game in particular, the the, the tactical side of that game, I, I thought was was really interesting because it was two teams that are, are far, were far from perfect in that game. They both suffered blows. They had to adapt at points. So it, there wasn't a one way flow like maybe we have seen in some of the other matches. It feels like a lot of the games we have watched so far, as illustrated by some of the score lines, have been very one-sided they've either gone one way or the other and the Netherlands Sweden match wasn't like that it went back and forth over the course of 90 minutes so I think in a a lot of ways that's actually been the most interesting 
um, match of the tournament so far and also that Portugal-Switzerland game as well was very similar. Mm-hmm. So it feels like Group C is maybe... Maybe this changes when obviously the Netherlands and Sweden are, are are probably the two strongest teams in that group. So maybe it changes once they play the lower qual- uh, lower calibre op- opponents. But right now it feels like that's a nicely poised group. All right, and let's then conclude with Group D. Uh, we had two second-half goals providing the action in Belgium's 1-1 draw with Iceland, while France put Italy to the sword with a dominant 5-1 to win. Uh, that was seen as a statement of their intent until England humiliated Norway, uh, but I think still France proving they are plenty strong, even without some of their sort of legendary players. Uh, maybe my feeling that they were going to be in a lot of trouble and meltdown, uh, not quite coming to play so far with that win. Graham, who stood out to you or what stood out to you in that win for France? Yeah, so we spoke a little bit about France. So I'm going to rewind it a little bit because maybe people didn't catch our, our preview mm-hmm. uh, podcast. But we, we spoke a little bit about France before the start of the tournament. And, and the, the consensus was that they were an accident waiting to happen. Yep. There'd been a lot of discussion around uh, Karine Diacra's role as, as, as head coach and how that dressing room was an unhappy place to be. And perhaps most crucially, that France had left some of their best players at home due to the, the tension in that dressing room. So uh, Eugénie Le Sommer and Amandine Henri, they, they aren't in the squads at this tournament. So it really felt like I tuned into that France-Italy game almost expecting a little bit of an implosion from France, and yep. that did not happen at all. We got an explosion from France. <laughs> they completely blew away Italy in that, the, that opening game uh, of, the, of their campaign. And it was an it was incredible it was an incredible performance that until England's demolition of Norway I thought was the most impressive of the tournament uh, so far and, and now everyone is wondering if we've called this wrong if the Acra a woman nicknamed Dragon in France <laughs> uh, which kind of tells you how she is seen by the French media and French fans maybe she has finally built a team capable of winning this whole thing and, and brushing away this reputation that that France have of being perennial underachievers and I very much liked a lot of what Diacra asked her team to do in this game. So key to, to this win for France was their effectiveness in the wide areas. So on the left side, uh, you had Delphine Cascarino, who kept on cutting inside. She was drawing defenders. She was uh, creating space for Cachoy on, on the overlap. And then in the, in, in the first half in particular, Italy didn't really know what to do about this, this situation. They didn't know whether to stick with one or the other, and it just created so much space. And it, and it felt like Italy were panic, panicking a lot in, in that first half. And then on the right side, you had Diani, whose, whose feet were just far too quick for our marker. So you had, you had a different approach on either wing, and it was equally devastating. And France just kept on achieving success in, in the wide, wide areas, whether it was a, a, a cross, or a, or a, a you know a diagonal pass from uh, Wendy Renard, who kept on playing those diagonal passes out wide, which said to me it was very much a deliberate ploy to target those one-on-one areas, to create those one-on-one situations. And obviously, the, the first two goals that France score in this game come from them playing it out wide. They play the cross or the pass into the centre, and then it falls back to someone to to finish. And even though you know France were very impressive in this game, a lot of standout performers. Katoto was very good in this game. Giorgio scores a hat trick. Wendy Renard was very good. Diani, as I, as I highlighted, it almost I have I don't have as much analysis of France as maybe some of the other teams because it just felt like they kept doing the same thing that was like well this is working for us and Italy don't know how to handle this so we're just going to keep doing this for 45 minutes until half time when we're like 5-0 up and we don't really need to worry about the second half and that's yep. kind of what happened. It, exemplified by if you go back and watch some of the goals especially I think their first three goals 
if I pause it and say they're going to score in the next five seconds, most of the time I think you'll be very surprised because a lot of the time it's like Wendy Renard on the ball in their own half and five seconds later the ball is in the back of the net. But that like further drives home your point that it's because they were doing, I'm going to assume, very practiced patterns and pulling them off very successfully. It was attacking down one channel with speed or moving the ball to one side, then moving it very quickly to the other and then attacking down that channel and then having numbers crash the box. And that also was a big standout moment, was having those numbers in and around the goal it's not just the sort of those wide uh, 1v1 isolation moments. Yes, uh, Gianni especially able to kind of uh, have her way with the Italian defense and the Italian defenders. But having those numbers in the box, I think, creates concern. It creates confusion. It just creates uncertainty. And uh, you can really see that in the opening goal where it's basically just the ball comes in. A bunch of different Italian players all have a chance uh, to put a foot on it. Sarah Gama, the one that I would most expect to just clear that, she sort of gets a left foot to it half passes it, half just sort of lets it deflect up in the air. Boom, it's there on a platter to be put into the back of the net. And I think it was just the dominance of France and how lethal they could be, I think, really put Italy on their heels. That said, I still think there were moments, uh, especially in the opening couple minutes, when Italy made France look uncomfortable and were able to get shots and were able to get good attacking play. And, And I think maybe this was just a very dominant French team, but I still think Italy, uh, we might not see them play two more games in the group and be out. I won't be surprised if they end up making it to the next stage. Yeah, I agree. There were moments of this game where Italy did do a lot better, particularly in the second half. And I'm going to, I'm going to come on to that, but I don't know if anyone has ever done, this is a very, very niche ref, niche reference, but there's a, there's an attraction at Universal Studios, a men in black <laughs> attraction, right? And basically there's a moment in that attraction, if people don't know where, if you hit, it's a, it's a kind of a shooting arcade game, you move through it. And there's a moment where you can hit a specific point and it gets you a thousand points. And if you, if you know where it is, you just continue to hit it and you're going to win your game and in, in the car that you're, you're at. So I don't know if, if, if 5-1 is a reflection of how good yeah. France are as a team or whether they just figured out that yep. something, they just figured out something Italy couldn't handle and they just kept on doing it and doing it. And I think that's illustrated by the fact that Guerrero gets a hat trick in this game. Yep. A midfielder who is predominantly a defensive minded midfielder gets a hat trick in this game because she, her first goal, she arrives late on the scene to finish one of those crosses. As I mentioned, she makes this late run and she, she thinks, well, I'm going to do that again when that happens. And she scores another one and she thinks I'm going to do that. I'm just going to keep doing this. And she ends up with three goals. So I'm not entirely sure if this was a true reflection of both where France and Italy are. And as you said, the Italy did do th- th- some things well. The second half, they, they started to actually gain a foothold in the match. They were a little bit more ambitious. They started to play out a bit more. They used the wings themselves, and that's where the Italian goal comes from, across a from the left-back area. But it, it goes without saying that Italy need to be more defensively solid yeah. and they need to figure out what went wrong against France and how to stop that and how to kind of make that that area between the defence and the midfield more compact because it just felt like that's where France were getting a lot of joy and in, in the wide areas as well. If they do that, I think Italy will be okay against um, their final game, their next game against Iceland, I mm-hmm. think it is. Is that, am I correct in saying that? I think they'll be okay in, in their, in their next group stage match. Yeah. I, I think, I think they will be too, because if we, if we then look at that Iceland Belgium game for a moment, it was Iceland doing the things that we expected from the preview, not playing the most proactive possession oriented soccer, but still being good enough to get that draw. 
But for Belgium, that was pretty much the most attacking lineup they could have put out. It felt to me like that's what they were trying to do, was basically set up to make sure they get this win because they're less sure they're going to get a win against France. But maybe if you get a win against Iceland, you get a draw against Italy, you can hope that that four points is enough. Or maybe you think you can beat Italy and then you get all six. But this lineup of a a 4-1-3-2, Dekaini is is starting as the kind of number 10, even though she wore number six. But Cayman has been so important to them in qualifying. She scored tons of goals. She's in there. Uh, Willard is, is up top partnered by Dante, and it's just a ton of attacking players, uh, and yet they're still not able to really take the game to Iceland and get that result, and it just makes me think that there, there's two kind of very capable, competent teams in Belgium and Iceland, but I don't know if they have that next-level attacking ability, certainly not to the extent that France does, uh, that that it's going to make Italy as uncomfortable as they looked in uh, sort of those opening minutes against France. So I, I think though Italy are at the bottom are at the bottom of the table right now, uh, obviously that, that next game, obviously the next game is always going to be very important, but I think if they can get a win against Iceland, they will be back on solid footing, and, and I expect them to be able to do so, which means congratulations to Iceland on your 3-0 win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps, maybe. Our predictions haven't gone down so well at this yeah. tournament so far, as proven <laughs> by how well Germany and France are doing, so absolutely. Congratulations, Iceland, on making the quarterfinals. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, Graham, a- any other things we wanted to discuss? I feel like we've we've gone plenty long talking about plenty of different teams and players and tactics and all that good stuff. I have very much enjoyed it, my friend. No, I think we, we covered a great deal there. It's, it's, a, it's a great tournament. I would suggest if you haven't caught any of the group stage games, certainly catch some of the knockout games because it's a 16-team tournament. Already in the group stages, there's been a great concentration of, of quality, which mm-hmm. maybe you don't get in some of the, the men's tournaments now, certainly when it's going to go to a what is it, a 118-team tournament in uh, USA, Canada, and Mexico in 2026 yeah, on the men's right. side. So a 16-team six, tournament feels very, very refle- refreshing. And by the time you get to the knockout rounds, I think we're going to get some pretty blockbuster games against some really good teams. I'm glad you said that because I keep being like, okay, Group D, and then where's Group E? Where's Group F? Like, I keep looking for the, for the more <laughs> groups, and I'm glad that they're not there. It is a very manageable tournament that I think does make it fun because then you know you've got uh, very good quality. And I think thus far, most of the teams have been pretty high quality all of the games have been enjoyable I keep kind of finding myself pulled in and uh, looking up new players that I'm not familiar with and trying to figure out how Werder Bremen have a, a player on like every single team uh, and are somehow <laughs> not winning the Champions League and Manchester United uh, their women's team keeps having players all over the place and yet that's not great uh, see Taurus daughter uh, that feels like very much a Manchester United center back right there uh, so yes I would oh, encourage yeah. people to watch the rest of the group stage but certainly if that's too much then to tune in for the knockout rounds. We will be back at the very least to do a final review of the group stage, if not before, and then we'll be covering the knockout rounds in more detail. But for now, Graham Ruffin, thank you for taking all the time to talk to me about the Women's Euros today. Thank you, Taylor Rotwell. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you tomorrow.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.